0: is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show.
2: Welcome to this end-of-the-week edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you for joining us today and all week. It's been an eventful one, and uh, no less eventful over the last 24 hours as a insane plot to uh, uh, allegedly kidnap Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer. Uh, Whitmer, excuse me, was foiled by the FBI. Six men have been charged by federal prosecutors for this plot in Michigan. This, uh, I guess, they're part of this group called the Wolverine Watchmen. Uh, and what these individuals, uh, who these individuals seem to be, Are uh, those who are waiting for the uh, standby order from Trump? Well, that's what you'd believe if you were listening to Gretchen Whitmer and uh, other Democrat socialist politicians that are supposed to be legitimate as compared to actually listening to what some of these goons uh, with Antifa flags in the background, no less, actually said in their social media postings, here's one.
3: Trump is not your friend, dude. And it's it amazes me that people actually like believe that when he's shown over and over and over again that he's a tyrant. Every single person that works for government is your enemy,
2: dude. Uh, certainly uh, those uh, legitimate Democrat socialists don't believe the last part of that statement. But uh, Trump is a tyrant. How often have we heard variations of that from those same people who were just protected by the uh Trump administration's Department of Justice, Gretchen Whitmer and company. Oh, and interestingly, again, this guy with an Antifa flag in the background as he's making these online videos. So Gretchen Whitmer apparently was the target of a kidnap plot by an idea. Uh, They have uh, similar views on police, too, it seems. These order followers are not here to protect you
3: at all. And I really, really, really want to try to get you to understand that because you are not going to achieve freedom by continuing to support these people under the erroneous belief that they're here to protect you. That's just incorrect.
2: That's and- uh, not dissimilar to the essay uh, we discussed from Angela Davis earlier in the week where uh, the arguments not to abolish police are like the arguments not to abolish slavery. Crack Pottery Begets Crack Pottery, Governor Whitmer's response to the announcement that these individuals had been charged and that she was the target of su- such a plot as I described.
4: When our leaders meet with, encourage or fraternize with domestic terrorists, they legitimize their actions and they are complicit.
2: Uh, is she talking about the mayors uh, around the country, the big dem city mayors fraternizing domestic terrorists? Who's been appeasing domestic terrorists? Antifa, President Trump. That's who she's clearly implicating.
4: As a mom with two teenage daughters and three step sons, my husband and I are eternally grateful to everyone who put themselves in harm's way to keep our family safe.
2: Now let's get on with defunding the police. For more on all of this, we're pleased to be joined by Scott McKay, publisher at the Hayride and contributor to the American Spectator. Scott, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it.
1: This guy, Brandon Caserta, the guy on the on the does he not just remind you of of Jeff Lebowski. I mean, I'm hearing <laughs> the guy's voice and I swear, it's like, it's the big Lebowski. Yeah.
2: Um, uh, yeah. You know, I mean, let's not, let's not uh, pull the dude into this, please.
1: Well, I mean, the dude abides, I get I, it, but uh, you know, this, uh, it's just, um, if I'm going to be kidnapped by somebody, it, you know, it might be him. He fixes your white Russian and, you know, it's all good, <laughs> but, um, do, do, you know, and I, you know
2: do, do, do we have to do this? Do we have to do where we do, where we remind people That uh, no, Bernie Sanders wasn't responsible for the guy who opened fire on Republican members of Congress playing softball. And no, President Trump or any Democrat mayor or Gretchen Whitmer is responsible for these kooks that hatched this idiotic plot. And can we just not have force feed everything through a political prism uh, for once? And the answer, of course, is no.
1: Well, I mean, you know, it it was the feds who uh, broke this little uh, wannabe Guy Fawkes plot up. I mean, right. Uh, you know, if, if Trump was really behind it, I would think that he would turn the feds loose, which he did not. So, uh, you know, most of this stuff is just, uh, you know, I, it, what it is is it's the con- it's a total contempt for the American voter to be attempting to politicize something that you know anybody of even slightly below average intelligence is going to note right away has nothing to do with the legitimate political process. Uh, um, but yeah. we that's where we are. I mean, just yeah. so, you know, use everything we can. Um, and some of this is on both sides, but I think the Democrats are, you know, a, a further down this road than the Republicans are. Um, you know, and at the end of the day, I mean, you know, what are you going to rule over when you, uh, you know, when you, when you win this way, if you do.
2: Mm. I think, uh, you know, you know such, I'm, such pedestrian concerns about how to govern are. uh, way down the list, uh, right? It's uh, about uh, using every means possible by any means necessary, if you will, to gain power. And then we'll figure out how to compassionately deploy that power at a later date.
5: Yeah. uh, You know,
1: that's the the most depressing piece to all this. And, and you know, I'm going to maintain my faith in the American people that it's not going to work until such time as I, I simply can't maintain <laughs> well, that faith. Well, now, hopefully that that day doesn't come anytime soon.
2: Yeah. And, you know, you, you had an interesting piece in the Spectator recently because you're you're wrestling with the same thing. I think a lot of us are, which is trying to uh, square some of the polling, which is, uh, again, reminiscent of the polling in 2016, with what we know is happening on the ground in terms of 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 actual data that is uh, observable, uh, that has been quantified, like voter registration numbers and other campaign fundamentals and 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 how do you how does it shake out for you when you're trying to make sense of where this race is actually at the polling and some of the anecdotal evidence versus the campaign fundamentals and other anecdotal evidence
1: well i you know one of the things that struck me was uh and i can't remember what the guy's name is and it doesn't really re- it doesn't really matter but the guy who's like the senior political editor at nbc news goes and tweets when they had put their poll out that I think it was, you know, Biden plus 14 or something. Um, And he said, well, you know, we're using a registered voter model a month out from the election because we think there's going to be, you know, 170, 175 million voters out there. This will be the biggest turnout election ever. And, you know, the likely voter thing is no longer applicable, Um, which, you know, in other words, what I hear the guy saying is, Well, you know, we're polling based on a model that we'd like to see. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, we're we're just going to pick that model and then, you know, run our poll based on that. I mean, you know, does it have anything to do with anything at all? No, we're just going to do it. And then this is, you know, this is where we generate the numbers. And it's been said repeatedly that these polls are not an attempt to inform the public, they're an attempt to influence the public. And to some extent, I think it's working. I think it's working a lot more among the, you know, Twitter and pundit class than probably the American people. Uh, because, you know, if you go on Twitter or if you, you know, pay attention to some of these uh, these pundits, even on the conservative side, I mean, they're throwing in the towel, they think it's all over, and, and uh, you know, that's reminiscent of 2016 as well. Yeah. Um, but I, I you know, I don't know that the American people are necessarily buying into all of this, though.
2: No, I, I think that's right. Um, I think this is a, a lot of navel gazing going on among those in very small circles who have an outsized sense of self. Uh, I think that's right. Um, that's not to say that it's not a 50 50 proposition or maybe even a little bit worse for Trump. But. I mean, the example you gave of NBC, I mean, that is just that is political malpractice is what that is. Yeah. Uh, and, and the interesting yeah. thing, you know, a lot of this stuff could end up hoisting the Democrats uh, by their own patar, uh The idea that this is a foregone conclusion. Well, the Trump people are coming up coming out because they're not going to be demoralized by what they're hearing from the D.C. press corps. So all you're really doing is telling uh, those who may lean your way, there's no need to vote. We got this. That's not good. Right. Um, and it, the, the other, well, which is what happened in 2016. I mean, yeah, they're right. making the exact same mistake they made before. And it seems to me another example of this is the push for mail in balloting uh, as much as it uh, opens up the possibility of, uh, more, uh, more, you know, makes the system more susceptible to fraud. The flip side of that, too, is to say, you know, we know from previous elections, the spoiler trade on those ballots because people improperly fill them out at a much higher rate than they do on site. And so by pushing most of your voters in that direction, you could end up disenfranchising just enough of your own voters to toss the election the other way.
1: You can put your tinfoil hat on and and decide whether that's a feature rather than a bug, because if you feel like you're going to lose Pennsylvania close, then go ahead and spoil all the ballots so that you can accuse Trump of rigging it. I don't know if I buy that. I mean, I'm not suggesting it, but some of these people, I think, are capable of doing things that are very much beyond the pale in terms of the integrity of this election.
2: When we come back with uh, Scott McKay, I want to uh, get uh, an understanding of his belief that American culture is trending Trump's way. It's a bit counterintuitive. We'll hear more from Scott McKay, publisher of the Hayride, contributed to American Spectator, right after this.
3: rescue me uh-huh. would you rescue me would you rescue me when i'm by myself when i need your- exposing
0: political fakers fixers and takers he's dan proft and this is the dan proft show
2: Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Scott McKay. He's the publisher at uh, Hayride, and uh, he's also contributed American Spectator. And Scott, uh, you uh, contend uh, in a recent piece that you uh, that you wrote. American culture is trending Trump's way, not Biden's in terms of thinking about uh, November 3rd. Why do you think that is? You know, the the the. sort of uh, review of the landscape suggests that the left is in charge of all these cultural institutions that have so much influence. How is it trending Trump's way?
1: Well, there, there, there's no doubt they're in control of the institutions, but how healthy are the institutions?
2: Uh-huh.
1: Right. I mean, you're, you're looking at like the NBA's TV, TV ratings after this, and they have gone completely overboard with the black lives matter stuff. They've run off better than two thirds of their audience on television. Um, You know, the NFL is has fewer problems, but still their TV ratings are down. Um, You know, the motion picture industry is, I, I, I think, literally just about dead. I mean, you know, you've got theater chains which are closing all of their locations now, cannot make a living. And it's, you know, some of that is COVID. But also, I mean, this is at the tail end of a, you know, years long decline in theater attendance, Um, so I, you know, a lot of the institutions that the Democrats used to draw their cultural power from, um, no longer have the power that they used to have. Um, and, you know, and the American public has really tuned them out. I mean, I, you know, the things are so bad that, you know, the TV ratings for stuff across the board, when people are generally stuck at home, you know, are not as good as they used to be. I mean, people just turning the TV off. They're, they're, um cutting the cord on their cable and, and all of the rest of this stuff. So I, you know, those things I think are indications that the American public has had it with, uh, you know, having their entertainment media, uh, politicized and, and, you know, kind of turned against them. Um, you know, and you, and you can see it. And, you know, I, I think a lot of this manifests itself in, in, the Trump crowd clearly having more energy behind it than the Biden crowd. So, you know, whether that, that may not translate to the election, maybe these polls are correct, but you know, like Breitbart said, you know, politics is downstream from culture and the street seems to have been dammed up in terms of the American cultural scene, because those institutions that used to be just, you know,
5: blow torches of, of, uh, uh,
2: Of left system is brightly right now. Uh, One more uh, of the fundamentals you tackle in this piece I referenced of yours, sort of a um, paraphrasing of Earl Long's old formulation that people don't want good government. They want good entertainment. You uh, suggest that he who has more fun wins, uh, particularly in otherwise uh, anxious times, maybe. Uh, And uh, the the Trump, the Trump, as well as the Trump campaign, just seem to be having more fun in this campaign.
5: Well, that was certainly the case in 2016, right? I mean, you know, there, there was
1: zero fun uh, on Hillary Clinton's side. Um, you know, and if you go back, I mean, there, you know, Mitt Romney was not fun. John McCain was not fun. You know, for you know, for whatever else Ob- Obama was, it was fun to be an Obama supporter. I mean, there was a lot of enthusiasm on that side. And, and you know, that, that campaign, uh, both in 08 and in 12, um, you know, I mean, the, there was their people enjoyed themselves much more than the Republicans did. And I think that, you know, Trump has absolutely built that within his campaign. And, you know, Biden hasn't. And I, I've noticed this just about every single political campaign that I've ever paid attention to. Uh, the, the the side that has more fun is the one that wins, whether they're, they're TV ads or are you know are more entertaining or the candidate is more is funnier or whatever um the campaign that you know is is more fun to be a volunteer on or to support uh is almost always the one that wins and i there i mean there is absolutely no fun in joe biden's campaign Mm -hmm. i mean there's none there is no real campaign the candidate doesn't campaign when he does Everybody's got to stand in a circle that they spray painted on the ground um, and, 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 you know, they're all wearing masks and it's the whole thing is just there's no fun to it. And, you know, I don't know, maybe America's changed and, you know, fun is no longer part of the mix. But, you know, that, that once again, this would indicate that this country is not, uh, you know, the country that we know. Well, Nancy, I just
2: don't believe that's true. Nancy Pelosi is trying to bring the fun uh, today, announcing a a 25th Amendment commission uh, to uh, uh, determine whether or not uh, President Trump should be removed from office. Uh, You know, if you can't do it by coup, then you do it by 25th Amendment invention. Uh, So uh, this, this clearly she's I don't know that it necessarily means she thinks he's going to to win. I think it's probably more likely she wants to frame the race as uh too much crazy versus too little cognition which is the way the the left uh, the the Trump campaign is in part framing Joe Biden i mean is isn't that really it he he's crazy he's unfit for office and uh crazy should trump uh you know um absent minded
5: right
1: well um Okay, I mean, I, I, I guess you know you can round up enough dog-faced pony soldiers.
2: Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. And, uh, get a posse and, together. And, of and, you them. know,
1: yeah. to change the country. I, I mean, I, you know, I, I mean, I would put to you that not only is Biden, you know, lacking in in cognitive talent at this point, but he also may be crazy. Um, you know, I mean, I, I think that the the contention that you can win an election by abjectly abjectly and outrightly refusing to answer a fundamental question, like whether you're going to pack the Supreme Court, I would say that that might be the craziest thing that I've ever seen. Um, I I mean, like, the idea of packing the Supreme Court prior to a month ago would have seemed like just about the craziest thing I've ever seen in American politics.
6: Uh, And and
1: now it's, no, I am going to... You know that's a great question, and I refuse to answer it. I've never seen anything like that in my life. Um, and I, I mean, you know, I go back to the old, uh, what, what is it, dodgeball? You know, this seems like that's a bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see. Yeah, right. He, yeah,
2: I, uh, I, I appreciate that uh, he doesn't want to make headlines by answering the question, so instead he's going to make headlines by not answering the question. <laughs>
7: I, I don't really
2: I, I, follow I don't, the yeah, exactly,
7: like, like.
1: I mean, if you're forepacking the court and if Biden refuses to answer the question, you know, what kind of warm and fuzzy feeling does that give you? Like, you know, hey, I'm going to you know, I'm going to play like this thing is is actually in my agenda and I'm on your side. But I'm Joe Biden. Am I really, really trustworthy? I mean, if you're a hard
2: leftist. This was not your guy. I mean, he might be shining you on to get your vote. Is he trying to be like a reality TV star? You have to vote for me and find out what my decision is after the election. (laughs) I don't know. I I don't know what it is. Look,
1: if you're trying to be as fun as Trump, that's not the way to do it. Yeah.
2: Yeah. He is Scott McKay, publisher at The Hayride, contributor to The American Spectator. Scott, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it.
1: Absolutely, Dan. Take care. Have a good weekend. You too. Take care.
0: ProfShow.com.
2: Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We uh, turn our attention away from uh, our discussion with Scott McKay on matters Gretchen Whitmer, and Nancy Pelosi related to COVID. President Trump issuing another video via Twitter yesterday. Again, touting the treatment he received at Walter Reed per the emergency use authorization from the FDA for this monoclonal antibody treatment developed by Regeneron, which is a pharma company, and suggesting he's uh, working to ensure that starting with seniors, the more vulnerable population, that anybody infected gets access to the same treatment that he had at Walter Reed.
1: But we have medicines right now, and I call them a cure. I went into the hospital a week ago. I was very sick and i took this medicine and it was incredible i I could have walked out the following day sooner it was incredible the impact it had and we're going to make that and others that are similar to it almost identical we're going to make them available immediately we have an emergency use
2: authorization for more on this, we're pleased to be joined again by Joakim Book, a visiting scholar at the American Institute for Economic Research. Joakim, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it.
7: Pleasure to be on the show. Thank you very much.
2: So, uh, you know, the, the week's developments on the uh, therapeutic and uh, vaccine front and, and the focus on that, it seems to me that certainly everybody is unified on the desire for a vaccine, even though Kamala Harris won't take it if Trump says that it's okay to take. She has to hear from Tony Fauci first. But also it still is sort of magical thinking in the sense that What the medical experts are telling us is that even if and when a vaccine comes online, combined with the effective therapeutic treatments that have been employed for some time now, from the monoclonal antibodies, which is more recent, to dexamethasone, to remdesivir, to HCQ, that you're still going to have a sizable percentage of the population that will not be immune. And uh, and to the extent that even they desire to take a vaccine, it will not be 100% effective, and it will take time to make its way through populations as big as exist in the West and the rest of the world. And so still, we're back to this point about how do we live with COVID? And it seems like all of that good news on the therapeutic and vaccine front notwithstanding, we're still not confronting that fundamental question.
7: What? what's this Milton Friedman quote? There's nothing so permanent as a temporary government program or measure. Like, yeah, it kind of feels like sometimes politicians are talking up this, this idea that we would just like have this one thing and then everything will go back to normal. Like, do we seriously think that we'll regain all the liberties that we've lost? Do we really think we'll get that back? Do we really think everything's going to go back to normal? I'm a little skeptical. you know?
2: Yeah, right. And so uh, the, the examples around the world that are hotly debated, let's start with Sweden, you know, I feel like Lenny and Of Mice and Men. Tell me the story about the Swedish bumblebee, Joakim.
7: Yes, I read this kind of a provocative article called the Swedish bumblebee. And I don't know if you guys have heard the story of the bumblebee, but at least I heard it when I was in high school. The story goes something like the bumblebee is a strange kind of insect. It shouldn't be able to fly. It defies uh, the laws of, of, of thermodynamics and gravity, but somehow it does fly. And it was always like a strange story, right? Because obviously, if you look at the window, you see the bumblebee flying. So clearly, there's something wrong in your analysis. What I was doing then is saying that Sweden is a bumblebee in the same sense, because everybody looking at Sweden economically in the first place, they say the same thing. You know, it's a very state heavy, like a big state participation in the economy, taxes a lot, regulates a lot. It shouldn't be able to be this successful. And you know, it's in, in GDP per capita terms, it does better than, uh, Britain and it does as well as other European countries. In some measures, it trails the United States, but only by 10, 15% its unemployment rate is something like a couple of percentage above the U.S. rate, but, you know, quality of life and, like, that kind of thing, it's still doing pretty well. So there's something wrong in the bumblebee theory that, you know, Sweden shouldn't be able to be be this successful, uh, but it is. And then I coupled that with now a secondary thing. Like, so the pandemic is another odd behavior, right? Sweden is an odd one out. It's the outlier here. So the story that we've been told for, I don't know, seven months now, I, I lose track, is, you know, If we lock down society, fewer people get infected. If fewer people get infected, fewer people die. And everything else would be awful and, you know, sacrificing people on an altar of I don't even know what. But so then I pointed out that Sweden, you know, is odd in this way too. It's a bumblebee in the the corona debate as well uh, because it kept everything open, but it still had not everything. You know, there are some stuff that Sweden did, some sensible minimum-based things that Sweden did, like hand sanitizer or like these... um, plexiglass uh, things in front of uh, shops or whatever, keep some distance. Um, but everything else was open. You know, malls were open, gyms were open. I could go visit people if I wanted to. Shops were open. hairdressers were open. Um, but it still has lower per capita deaths than, you know, some of these like basket case countries like the U.S. or the U.K. and Spain. So clearly, like, there's something wrong in this story, too. Like, the, um, the story about how uh, keeping open means everybody dies and closing down means everybody lives. Uh, is also a bumblebee story. It's also completely off. Um, and, uh, and, and Sweden is doing well or defying the laws of, of, of corona, if you wish, um, and doing um, okay, all things considered, you know?
2: Uh, so when we come back, I want to pick up on the discussion of lockdowns. And uh, let's take a look at the science and data on lockdowns with Joaquin Book, visiting a scholar at the American Institute for Economic Research. More right after this.
0: Listen, the more you'll know this is this this is the Dan Proft Show.
2: Welcome back to the show. Uh, The failed experiment or a failed experiment, actually, is the title of John Tierney's new piece at uh, City Journal. John Tierney, former New York Times columnist, a friend of the show. He writes, while the economic and social costs uh, have been enormous of lockdowns, it's not clear the lockdowns have brought significant health benefits beyond what was achieved by people's voluntarily socially voluntary uh, social distancing and other actions. Some researchers have credited lockdowns with slowing the pandemic, but they've relied on mathematical models with assumptions about people's behavior and the virus's tendency to spread the kinds of models and assumptions previously produced wild overestimates of how many people would die during the pandemic. Uh, in a comparison of 50 countries, a team led by Rabiel Chaudhry at the University of Toronto found that COVID was deadlier in places with older populations and higher rates of obesity. Not, not surprising. But the mortality rate was no lower in countries that closed their borders or enforced full lockdowns. Additionally, after analyzing 23 countries and 25 U.S. states with varying policies, Andrew Atkinson of UCLA and fellow economists found that the mortality trend was similar everywhere once the disease took hold. Uh, Number of daily deaths rose rapidly for 20 to 30 days and then fell rapidly. Simon Wood at the University of Edinburgh concluded that infections in Britain were already declining before the nation's lockdown began in late March. In an analysis of uh, Germany's 412 counties, Thomas Weiland of of the uh, Karlsruhe Institute of Technology found infections were waning in most of the country before the national lockdown began and that the additional curfews imposed in Bavaria and other states had no effect. It's possible, writes Tierney, the lockdowns accelerated the decline in some places and produced benefits that have gone undetected in those studies. Sure, that's possible. Given all the uncertainties, you can't rule out some benefits, but that's hardly a justification for continuing such a risky experiment. We would never do this with an experimental drug. Why would we do this with an experimental policy like locking down the healthy? Uh, For more on this, we're pleased to be uh, joined back by Joachim Book, visiting Scott, the American Institute for Economic Research, Boy, uh, you know, these uh, studies that I'm citing the, from John Tierney's summary—they don't seem to be getting a lot of uh, uh, a lot of attention, uh, but they should be. It seems to me they should be prompting real questions about trade-offs, a real assessment of the data as we're six months into these lockdown policies that persist, and in some cases are getting even more stringent than they were at the outset.
7: Yeah, this is one of the most interesting things. Like, I think really, like, posterity is going to judge us for this. Um, I think, I think one of my colleagues at AAR wrote something like, uh, this is the biggest policy mistake since the, since the New Deal. Uh, and, and there really is, like, once every, once the dust has settled and we can look at this more like calmly, um, I think lockdowns are going to look very, very poor. Um, and the people who uh, uh, who pushed for them are either, you know, going to backpedal or apologize, haha, hopefully, um, hmm. or they're going to come up with some reason for why, you know, they were right at the time. But in hindsight, um, uh, we realized, um, I mean, this is this is never how we've dealt with pandemics or uh, vicious, uh, viral diseases before. Uh, they basically just, uh, you know, invented a new playbook um, coming up with with moves as they go uh, so yeah and, this, and, and, this isn't exactly
2: Yeah and we've also suspended the measurements I mean uh, this is something that actually uh, uh Rich uh, uh Carlsgaard uh, the publisher of Forbes uh, talked about uh, months ago this you know days of life lived or uh, the 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 other uh, metric that's used uh, quality adjusted life year a wonky term for what yep. we think yep. of as a good year of life free from disease and disability and when you're talking about who COVID disproportionately affects people over 65, which account for 80% of the deaths in the United States, for example. I mean, there's no way to make this make sense under any sort of quality adjusted life year assessment. And that sounds like you're heartless, but that's what we do uh, and did all the time. We we intuitively know that a young person's life has more value, quality adjusted life year upside than an older person's life. And we're pretending not to know those things these days.
7: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it's not like if you're older and you're afraid or you have some, some condition uh, and you have good reason to be afraid, it's not like you don't have any protection. You know, like I keep thinking about my sister, you know, she has a respiratory illness. she's very angsty about, about this disease. I mean, perfectly fine. I mean, but there are ways for you to deal with that, right? You can stay inside, you can work from home, you can have like delivery services, drop stuff up at your door and don't go outside very much. But. Instead, what we do is just like one size fits all and we shut down society for it. It's like, really? Do we have to shut down society for people who are completely like, almost with no risk whatsoever like one of the first things we did i don't know if you guys remember this but that was my first reaction when i when 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 i heard about lockdowns being enacted like they wanted to close schools so i was like hang on a second kids are barely affected by this you know we're not even sure why but how, how many kids have died like three in total like you know nobody kids are not affected by this but still we just like to do this one size fits all blanket um solution and relegate everybody to their homes it's a, it's insane no so we think about the young people and like what they lost out like i wrote this article called End Is. Res- session now right and i was trying to um uh, to paint the picture of a lot of young people's like qualms right now and how hard it is for them you know it's like they can't go outside um they had all these plans that they wanted to do in their life you know they've saved up and they've worked their way through um uh through through school or university and saved some money and they wanted to go travel like nope we're not traveling sorry uh that's not important that doesn't matter um and like my neighbor wanted to have a graduation party nope you can't have a graduation party because we have this disease now, sorry. Um, it's like we have all these plans. Like they sound like mundane things, but they're important for young people, right? And they're like transformative things of their lives and the stages of their lives that they, they want to go through, uh, you know? And it's like, they don't face the same risks that um, uh, a lot of others, other people do, but still we have to like stop them from doing that. And it's like, really, does that make sense? Like how, how in the world did you come up with
2: this? Do you think the, uh, the Great Barrington Declaration that um, uh, is being initiated at AIER, uh, where you're a visiting scholar, uh, leading epidemiologists, uh, public health professionals, medical doctors like Kaldorf at Harvard and Gupta at Oxford and Bhattacharya at Stanford and many others who are signatories now, is, the, uh, is, is sort of the, the rational, truly uh, science and data crowd finally getting organized to respond with force to uh, some of the irrationality that abounds?
7: Yeah, I mean, I love it. I'm very happy that you know all these like um, dispersed and alone voices here and there are like coming together and like stating their opinions and and backing them up with facts and they're coordinating in a sense. I'm not overly optimistic that it's going to make much of a wave. Like it's making some waves in the media and stuff, but the most what I've seen is just like, well, there are always some outliers and some crazy people. But you know, 97% of scientists, blah blah blah. blah. You know, it's like there. It's always this like yeah. uh, downplaying of, of, of critics uh, and they can't possibly be right because every other epidemiologist in the world is on board with lockdown. So I don't even know, man. I'm well, not too hopeful.
2: It's something, though. It's something. And it's it's hard to argue with the credentials absolutely, absolutely. Of, of, yeah. of those that, that uh, fashion this uh, declaration. People should check that out. Joaquin Book, visiting scholar at the American Institute for Economic Research. Joaquin, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. Take care. Take care.
0: listening to the Dan Proft show on the Salem radio network.
2: Welcome back to the show. uh, Following our conversation with Joaquin book from American Institute for economic research, Uh, this aspect of uh, the pandemic and COVID culture, the decline in sports viewership. Now I know, what you're going to say is, well, that's because it's been so politicized. And that's certainly a part of it, particularly for the more popular sports of NFL football and NBA basketball, to some extent, even Major League Baseball. But um, the data is more comprehensive than that, suggesting there are other factors at play. U.S. Open, the golf final round, U.S. Open, down 56 percent. This is year over year. U.S. Open tennis down 45%, French Open 57%. The Kentucky Derby, I haven't seen a lot of BLM banners on horses, thankfully. Wouldn't be surprised if I did, but I haven't. Kentucky Derby down 43%, Indy 500 down 32%. Through the first four weeks, NFL is down 10%. The NHL playoffs were down 39%. Stanley Cup was down 61%. NBA finals down 45 percent. We talked about that earlier in the week. Conference finals were down 35 percent. So, you know, again, NBA, NFL, to some extent, NHL baseball, but uh, Kentucky Derby, U.S. Open tennis, U.S. Open golf for the most Indy 500. For the most part, these uh, other professional sports have been immune from too much politicization, too much moralizing from their their stars or uh, virtue signaling from their governing bodies. Uh, so some hypotheses, just to consider. I wonder if this is your perspective or your behavior. One is sports are very social. People love talking about sports with their peers uh, without interacting with as many people. People have less opportunities to talk about sports with others. The so-called elim- the elimination, I should say, of the so-called water cooler talk. You know, I talk about everybody who's watching the Bears game on Thursday night, uh, Bears and Bucks, and Tom Brady coming to Chicago and all that. And so that's what they're going to be talking about tomorrow. So I feel some social pressure to watch it, to, or at least to know what happened so I can uh, chat about it in the office the next day. Well, there is no office the next day. So I don't feel the social pressure. And uh, even the, to the extent I like it and like talking about it, I'm not around anybody. And I don't want to set up a Zoom call to talk about uh, the bears Bucks game. Okay. Maybe. Watching sports is a great way for people to tune out, relax, distract themselves from a normal life. But with so many people working from home, there's less of a defined break from work to non-work and potentially they're working less hard as well. So watching sports feels like uh, less of an escape than it used to. A political angle to this from a different direction. People have started consuming politics like they do sports and their interest in sports has been cannibalized by political political fanaticism. Some of that, especially in the run up to this election. Lots of people are experiencing mental health challenges and struggling and don't have the same interest in the bread and circuses anymore. They don't uh, have the same interest in things they used to enjoy, like sports. All good hypotheses. I think there's there's are all probably contributing factors uh, to getting on with sports. I also think when sports were off the grid for a time in the beginning of the lockdowns, at the beginning of at the height of the outbreak, you know, people also sort of adjusted to life without sports and so maybe they're not so keen to get back into uh, being uh, uh, religious followers of sports, uh, particularly those sports, again, that are lecturing them about how bad a person they are. This is Dan Proft.
0: This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show.
2: Welcome to this Wednesday edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you for joining us. Follow us at danproftshow.com, on social media, at danproftshow, or at danproft. Either one will work. President Trump uh, has been offering uh, videos mainly via Twitter this week, which have been uh, his updating the treatment that he gave and his perspective on making sure that same treatment, the monoclonal antibody treatment from Regeneron. Eli Lilly also has one in development is available, starting with seniors, but to Americans as well. So they get the same treatment, those who are infected, that the president got and uh, at taxpayer expense, too. So not out of pocket for them. This is all part of Trump trying to get people to live with the virus, not live for the virus. Even if a vaccine comes online, which you know, people are optimistic about, there's no indication. There's, you can't assume that it's going to be 100 percent effective and it will take time to distribute throughout the population. So what do you do in the interim? Hide in a bunker? Of course you can't do that. And so this was Andrew Cuomo's response to President Trump saying, Don't let the disease, don't let COVID-19 dominate you.
3: Be afraid of COVID. It can kill you. Don't be
1: cavalier. This is just more denial.
2: No, it's not more denial. Obviously, as somebody who's been infected, he doesn't deny that the disease is real. dum dum. is the difference between saying, I recognize this exists, but I'm not going to live in fear. FDR, you know, the great icon of the left... Nothing to fear but fear itself. Andrew Cuomo, now and I kind of left, nothing to fear except not being afraid. That's how you want to live your life? Who wants to live their life that way? Simple questions that people need to be confronted with. So they start answering them, perhaps some people in a way that is more grounded in rationality. For more on all things COVID-related and other campaign dealings, we're pleased to be joined again by Erin Perine. She is Trump campaign director of press communications. Erin, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it.
4: Thank you for having me.
2: So President Trump uh, also saying yesterday on uh, Sean Hannity's program that per the expectation that he will be cleared by his doctors for public events starting Saturday that he's hoping to do a rally if they can get one together in time, the campaign can. I guess that's on you guys, perhaps in Florida. And then if the uh, debate commission is going to stay committed to their changing of the rules after the fact, after agreement, despite the fact that there is no heightened risk. In fact, the risk would actually be less in a debate setting after President Trump has beat the virus and is better, that uh, he'll do other public events, more rallies rather than this non-debate virtual debate.
4: Yeah, I mean, the president's been clear he's not interested in a virtual debate, and there was a lot of back and forth yesterday. But listen, the debate commission is clearly full of never-Trumpers and swamp creatures, and they, instead of actually being nonpartisan, non-biased, have, again, put their finger on the scale in favor of Joe Biden. So we said, we're not going to do that. They unilaterally made the decision. The president's been very clear. So we're hopeful now that the president will be cleared by the medical doctors at the White House that we can do an in-person debate. There's no reason why we can't do that. We went to them months ago and said, we should move up the debate schedule. And they said, no, we can't do that. That's not how this works. The rules are the rules. Oh, except when it's politically expedient for them, then the rules are we make the rules as we go along. They're just being hypocrites, they're being ridiculous, and the president's gonna be cleared to be back out there. He wants to be back out there now. If it was up to him, he would be, but obviously the doctors are making sure he's A-okay 100% before he goes back out there. They're supposed to just facilitate the ability for the American people to see the exchange of ideas, the difference between the two candidates. And what they're trying to do is protect Joe Biden. Uh,
2: Aaron, with respect to the moderators for the, the, these debates, you know, people are wondering, well, why did the Trump campaign agree to these moderators? Uh, why not push back and try to get at least uh, uh, one, if not two, two moderators that would be even handed or maybe even center right so that not every question started from the premise of the left?
4: Well, we don't get a say in who the moderators are. Mm -hmm. We get a say in things like the build out, like the terms of negotiation, which you heard a little bit about going into the last debate. You know, having ears checked for earpieces, for listening devices. Those are things that we get a say in, but we don't get a say in who the moderators are. We actually put a list forward of people we would have wanted to see as moderators. And obviously the debate commission didn't take that into account.
2: Interesting. So so the diktat on. This is going to be a virtual debate on October 15th. President Trump said, you know, they didn't ask us. They just told us this is what we're doing. So what has the back and forth been like since that diktat was made public? Uh, You know, is there any give on the commission based on the science and the data with respect to the president's health?
4: I mean, at this point, there doesn't seem to be much that the debate commission is willing to change in terms of their, quote unquote, virtual debate. But that should leave a lot of concern for the American people. We know that Joe Biden uses a teleprompter when he does interviews. We know that he has those kind of aids available to him. So if he is in a room by himself with just his staff, you better believe he's going to try to cheat during the debate. You don't get to have somebody there holding your hand during a presidential debate. And if you need it, you probably shouldn't be running for president. We have an exceptional team on the president's side out there fighting for him out there doing the negotiating so we'll see what comes through
2: so if october 22nd isn't a problem for the star chamber commission i mean it's just remarkable uh, then, what about uh, having it after the October twenty second debate? Make it October 29th, a few days before the election.
4: I mean, absolutely. We want to have those debates happen. We've always wanted them to happen. We want to be flexible. We want to make this happen. But we'll have to see what the debate commission says.
2: If he wins re election, could his first order be to disband the presidential debate commission?
4: Well, you know, I mean, <laughs> I certainly can't say anything along no, those lines. I know, but it's really always been a biased organization.
2: I mean, it's just the it's the president. It's the presidency of the United States, and it. Both Biden and Trump, I mean both candidates, both parties, being dictated to by people about how, how the debate get, get rid of the moderators get rid of the debate commission uh, and the candidates just agree you show up and i show up at this time and we're going to talk you if it's we're going to do town hall then you pick an audience member then i pick an audience member to ask a question if we're going to just do us then you pick a topic and we talk about it then then i pick a topic and we talk about it. how about that get rid of all of the political ruling class dc press corps elite types from this entire process and just to have it you know stripped down unvarnished Two candidates discussing the issues for the American people rather than for the Beltway crowd. How about that?
4: Yeah, I mean, there are so many different options. Actually, Tom Bevan of Real Clear Politics just put out a tweet. He says, let's just do away with the idea that anybody's neutral. And why not have complete partisans ask the other party questions? Have Sean Hannity ask Joe Biden questions and have like Rachel Maddow ask Trump questions. Let's not pretend that people are neutral or moderate anymore or that there's anybody who's unbiased because in this day and age, that just doesn't exist.
2: All right. Well, I'm in in the offing. If you need somebody, I'll ask better questions than Hannity (laughs) with all due respect. So uh, with respect to the race itself, I'm sure you get it from a lot more directions than we do, but people trying to get a handle on where this is at. Uh, The polling is wild again. It's actually eerily reminiscent to 2016. You know, you have a poll that comes out, uh, couple days ago that has the president down 11 in Florida, which is absurd Then a poll out yesterday that has him plus three. And so eerily reminiscent of 2016. And then concurrent with that, you have the stories about the ground game for the campaign and for the Republican Party this year and how it is superior to the Democrats with respect to voter registration. You have the push by Democrats to do mail-in voting only. And we know the spoiler rate for mail-in ballots is much, much higher as a matter of course than it is for people who vote in person regardless of who you're voting for regardless of your party just more errors made mailing in versus at the polling place and you also have stories about you know swing areas in michigan and pennsylvania that are even more vociferous for trump in 20 than they were in 2016 how do you suss out the race what can you tell us about what the campaign thinks about where the race really stands right now three weeks out
4: Yeah, I think three weeks out, you know, we're seeing a tightening of the race, especially internally. And listen, that ground game that you talk about, that's right. We have an exceptional ground game. We are chasing our voters out. We're making sure they have the information. If they want to vote absentee, whatever their form of voting is, whatever it is in their area, we are getting them the information so that they can be able to safely vote, be able to do what they want to do and cast their ballot for President Trump. Joe Biden is just now trying to bring on a get out the vote operation to be able to knock doors, even though the science hasn't changed on that. We know this is going to be a tight election. We're ready for that. We're building for that. And so We're ready to go, whatever happens on Election Day, to make sure that we protect election integrity here in the United
2: States. Senator Ron Johnson had an op-ed in The Wall Street Journal yesterday, an American coup attempt. People also want to know, is uh, Attorney General Barr going to keep his word that the American people will know what happened in 2016 and 2017 before the election?
4: He wants to make sure he gets it right. He wants to make sure that we are getting all of the facts together so that if anybody did anything, they can be held accountable. And listen, every time the Democrats talk about, oh, Trump won't commit to a peaceful transition of power, they're the ones who refused to have a peaceful transition of power. Hillary Clinton knew she was lying, spreading disinformation. Obama knew it. When did Biden know it? Biden talked about using the Logan Act against Michael Flynn to try and undermine and take down a duly elected president and his administration. I mean, Democrats are corrupt, and the media just gives them a pass.
2: But, But isn't it wildly disappointing that the Durham report investigation won't be completed, the report won't be issued before the election? It is to me.
4: I mean, we want all the information out there. We want the facts out there, but we're not like Democrats. We want to make sure we get it right.
2: She is Aaron Perine, Trump campaign director of press communications. Aaron, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it.
4: Thank you. You can never surrender.
3: I if your path won't lead
2: you home, you can never
0: exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show.
2: Welcome back to the show. Following our conversation with... Uh... Aaron Perine from the Trump campaign and uh, uh, presaging our conversation with uh, Andy Crow from Rolling Stone after the break. Uh, one other aspect of this election that's interesting, a piece by uh, our friend Sam Abrams, who's a uh, professor of politics at Sarah Lawrence College. Uh, don't assume Gen Z will show up on Election Day. He's got some interesting data, survey data uh, about uh, Gen Z voters, 18 to 29 years old. From uh, this fall's uh, youth poll from Harvard's Institute of Politics. Significant enthusiasm gap between the candidates. We know that generally also translates down to the young, the youngins. 56% of America's 18 to 29 year old likely voters who support Trump are very enthusiastic about voting for him. Compared to just 35 of 18 to 29 year olds who are likely Biden voters. So again... Um, you know, in motivation matters. Your enthusiasm to support the candidates, your commitment to make sure your vote is counted. That that matters because life intercedes, or if it becomes a little bit complicated, as in these mail and ballot protocols. Uh you may just say, ah, oh, you know what, my vote really doesn't matter the heck with it. Hmm. Um low levels of enthusiasm may translate to not actually. Uh, may not translate to actually casting a ballot, writes Abrams, just to put an exclamation point on the one I made. Second, uh, the American Enterprise Institute's new socially distant how our divided social networks explain our politics survey reveals just 7% of Gen Zers have a very favorable view of Biden, while another 40 have a favorable view. So 47% overall favorability rating. This is appreciably higher than their view of Trump, only 20% favorability rating. So almost uh, two and a half to one. But it's anything, uh, but, but it, it's, it's, it's hardly a landslide of support from young Americans for Biden. He writes of his own students at Sarah Lawrence College, not exactly a bastion of conservative thinking. My students regularly share the fact that they have trouble getting behind Biden given his history of inappropriately touching women is less than consistent left of center positions. This fact, along with the Harvard enthusiasm data, again, suggests that the drive to vote for Biden may indeed be lower than many narratives assert candidates need to inspire voters to drive turnout, particularly those less socialized to turn out like your first or second time voters, right? Makes sense. Relatedly, the the same survey I just cited at, uh, asks if it has been easier or hard to make a decision about who to vote for this year. Abrams writes, given the polarized climate and the overall disdain for the Trump administration among the young, one would think that making a decision about voting in a few weeks was fairly easily, but yet 30% of Gen Zers and millennials state their decision was hard. This is significantly higher than their parents, Gen Xers, 21% and grandparents, 14% for boomers and 10% for silence. So, again, it provides perhaps uh, some additional evidence that Gen Zers may opt out of voting entirely. Uh, Going further, when asked who they'd vote for if the election were held today, Gen Zer is not uniformly in support of Biden. 57 for Biden, 57 percent, 18 percent for Trump, 6 percent said someone else, another 19 percent say they will sit this election out. One in five Gen Zers compare that to their older cohorts. Once again, the intention to sit out 19% for Gen Zers, 8% for Gen Xers, 5% for boomers. So again, significantly higher percentage already saying I'm likely to sit out. It's a tough decision. I'm not enthusiastic about Biden. You know, the sort of the the layers of evidence start to pile up that if you're expecting a record high turnout, generally speaking, driven by the young you may need to adjust your models. The uh, survey data additionally makes it clear that Gen Zers are politically engaged. It's not that they're not paying attention. It's that they may not be paying so much attention or have so much interest, so much enthusiasm about the election. To to uh, this point, two-thirds of Gen Zers have been following the election very closely Eighty eight percent have been paying attention to the pandemic. Eighty percent are following the BLM protests. So they're not ignoring current events, as Abrams observes. They just may be increasingly uh, disinterested in the election itself. He uh, concludes uh, that the data points collectively confirm a story my students have been sharing with me for the past month. Do not assume that Gen Zers will vote this fall. Excitement for Biden is low. Large numbers of Gen Zers already report that they do not intend to vote in November. And the electoral implications of the data that he reports could be significant. In a related story, <laughs> this is sort of fun. Uh, the uh, there's many uh, a radio talker and pundit on the right who have said that uh, leftism is a mental condition. Well, um, I know that's observational, but there may be an increasing body of data to support <laughs> to support that contention. Pew American Trends Panel uh, to the question: Has a doctor or other health care provider ever told you that you have a mental health condition? has a doctor or other healthcare provider ever told you that you have a mental health condition so the the survey asked people to self-identify and this is uh broken out by self-identification in terms of political philosophy so and and race white liberals gen zers 18 to 29 46% of 18 to 29 year old white liberals say, yes, a doctor or other health care provider has told me that I have a mental health condition. By contrast, 21 percent of white conservatives, 18 to 29, said the same, answered uh, yes to that question as well. In point of fact, the um, overall percentages across the various age cohorts among white liberals is significantly higher than white conservatives. Um, White liberals 30 to 49, 35 percent said, yes, a doctor or healthcare provider has told me I have a mental health condition as compared to 17 percent for white conservatives. So almost double liberal to conservative, uh, white liberal aged 50 to 64, 23 percent to 13 percent. So more than a time and a half, white liberal to white conservative has said, yes, a doctor has told me I have a mental health condition and 65 plus 15 percent to 5 percent, three to one. White liberals to white conservatives have said, yes, a doctor has told me I have a mental health condition. It seems uh, very pronounced on uh, the left side of the political spectrum. So when you hear uh, the next person, a parrot, a a Rush Limbaugh, or a Dennis Prager, that uh, leftism is a mental health condition, now you have the data to actually back up that contention. This is Dan pride.
0: the podcast of the show at danproffshow.com.
2: Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. At the top of the hour, we spoke with Aaron Perrine, who's a uh, director of press communications for the Trump campaign. And She basically said, yes, why would we agree to a second debate where the terms of the debate have been imposed on us? The the change has been imposed on us after there was already agreement and uh, in a situation where despite the president's uh, COVID infection, the doctors are set to clear him to resume public activities on Saturday. And uh, so there would be Less possibility, it seems, of any spread of COVID from the president of the United States in a debate where both candidates are physically present and all the protocols that were in place for the first debate or for the vice presidential debate, make it 12 feet instead of six feet, plexiglass and so forth, could be could be presented, could be could be featured also. Um, How is it that he's outside the window on October 15th, but that's a problem, but he's still outside the window on October 22nd, and there's been no announcement by the Commission on Debates to alter that debate in any way in terms of the formatics for more perspective on this and some of the other. Curious issues that have cropped up in the last couple of days as we stand here just three weeks out from Election Day. We're pleased to be joined again by Andy Kroll, Washington, D.C. Bureau Chief for Rolling Stone. Andy, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it.
8: Great to be back.
2: So uh, what about that? What, the, the, the debate commission's decision to impose this change after the terms were agreed upon um, and uh, that they don't seem, at least according to Trump's campaign spokesman that we talked to, There doesn't seem to be any give there in terms of trying to arrive at a compromise solution that would put both men on the stage together.
8: It seems that we've got a decant between three almost rival camps at this point, the Biden campaign, the Trump campaign, and the presidential debates commission. I mean, I hope that they can come to some kind of agreement here to get us the three debates or the two debates in town hall that we have planned on because this campaign year hasn't been really a campaign year. It's one of the strangest in memory. This hasn't, there hasn't been that much by way of actual in-person campaigning. And so the American people need to hear from yeah. the two candidates as much as possible in this last month.
2: Yeah. And, and it seems to me, I, I just, I don't get the dogmatism. It's apparent dogmatism there based on what I understand. Uh, maybe there's other information that suggests there is open-mindedness, but I don't know. But 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 make it after the 22nd, then I mean, push it back a week, the 22nd, then make the town hall style debate, the third debate on the 29th or something. It it just it just doesn't seem like a a reasonable position they're taking when everybody sort of concedes the point to your point about detente that, you know, having people in different physical locations debating via Zoom, that is not a real debate. That is not really does not meet the standard of both uh, candidates presenting themselves to the American public and in a in an environment like a debate
8: it's not the same and it i don't think the american people are going to get nearly as much from two parallel video feeds that will inevitably fritz out in the middle of yeah, right. the event itself as we all know given our you know zoom run work lives nowadays i don't think that's a, a feasible option I, I you know from what i hear the conversations are still ongoing to try to Work out a calendar that works. I, I, you know, you absolutely have to take public health considerations into play here and know the window of time in regards to the president. The president needs to be more forthcoming about his tests and how his, you know, the status of his health and these COVID infections to help shape his schedule. But they've got to come to some kind of agreement here. Again, we need to hear from these two candidates. I think if you're Joe Biden, you want to have as many chances as you can. You know, he did not do a particularly great service to his own policy agenda in the first debate. And if I were him, I'd want another chance to get in front of the American people, 50, 60, 70 million viewers possibly, to try to clean up his answer on what his healthcare plan entails, to try to be a little more forceful with other parts of his policy agenda because that first debate, I don't think did him particularly well in terms of explaining his own vision for the country as opposed to just creating a contrast with the incumbent president.
2: Uh, yeah. And uh, uh, well, he may, I don't know, he may be tired of not answering the question he keeps getting asked, whether it's on a debate stage or not about uh, court packing and choosing to make headlines by not answering the question rather than making headlines by responding with whatever his position actually is. Uh, well, let's pick it up there. And also said we did do postmortem with Andy, on the presidential debate last week but we haven't gotten his take on the VP debate that happened this past Wednesday so we want to do that and we'll do that right after this
3: Now I want to be with you all of the time all day I'm all of the night all day I'm all of the night
0: The more you listen the more you'll know This is this, this this the Dan Prof show
2: Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Andy Kroll. He's the Washington, D.C. Bureau Chief for Rolling Stone. And before the break, I raised the prospect of uh, both Biden and Kamala Harris on Wednesday night's debate, refusing to answer the question about whether or not their position is in support of expanding the number of members of the Supreme Court uh, if and when they are elected, after which Amy Coney Barrett is likely going to be seated as the ninth justice on that court. Joe Biden on the trail the other day asked again, same answer.
6: They'll know my opinion in court packing when the election is over. Now look, I know it's a great question, y'all, and I don't blame you for asking it, but you know the moment I answer that question, the headline in every one of your papers will be about that. Other than, other than focusing on what's happening now.
2: Well, that's an interesting uh, position to take. Uh, You could use that for every topic then. I'll tell you after the election, because if I give you an answer to any policy question, that's going to make headlines, Andy.
8: Of course. Yeah, I don't understand this answer from Joe Biden at all. And I can't imagine that the Biden campaign feels surprised that people are asking this question, whether it's coming up at the vice presidential debate, or on the campaign trail, this answer from Biden that you'll know my position on packing the Supreme Court, and that could mean a number of things, but most likely add, trying to add seats in some way to dilute conservative majority, if Andy Coney Barrett is confirmed, it's not an acceptable answer. And again, it can't be a presidential <laughs> candidate and say you'll know my position on this pressing issue after the day of the election. So, I mean, if the answer was a clear no, you think Joe Biden would say it? Right. Now, Here's here's the caveat I'll throw in there, which is, I personally believe, and I think there's a lot of great public research out there, both on the left and the right, about ways to reform the Supreme Court, whether it's term limits, whether it's some kind of rotation on and off of the court from members of the federal bench who are are already confirmed. A lot of good ideas out there that would prevent us from being in the situation where the death of a justice on the Supreme Court, whether it's Ruth Bader Ginsburg or Antonin Scalia, becomes this existential crisis that throws the country into a incredible panic i'm open to hearing those ideas i think joe biden would do well to talk about some of those ideas but that is not what he's doing he's just saying you'll know my answer after the election which isn't
2: acceptable <laughs> he's he's such a tease he, joe biden the flirt you know hey how you know i'll show you a little leg but uh, you gotta take me out and show me a good time and then i'll tell you. I mean, it's just uh, its really something to witness. And uh, Kamala Harris uh, fell in formation on Wednesday night, as she did on almost all of the Biden campaign stated positions. But, but I don't know that that necessarily afforded her so well. What was your assessment of uh, the respective performances?
8: The vice presidential debate to me felt like two sides in their trenches fighting over inches of territory and really not making much progress either way. I mean, from what I've read from focus groups and from polling and vice presidential debate, it didn't move the needle really in any direction, that it was, again, a sort of bloody stalemate. I do think that Senator Harris's non-answer about packing the Supreme Court did not help her cause or the Biden campaign's cause. I think Vice President Pence tried to rewrite the history of the last eight or nine months in this country as well which did not help his cause also but again he didn't have much of a hand to to play there so i don't think the debate mattered that much in the end but i do think that this court packing question is going to come up again whenever we get a second debate or town hall with the nominees, at the top of the ticket and joe biden's going to have to have something better than you'll know my answer after the day of the election i don't think they can keep that act up any longer
2: with respect to the vp debate i, I think it was the second most uh, watched vp debate ever which says something about people's uh, understanding of the of the presidential candidates perhaps and also because maybe you know people are not familiar with kamala harris it's been a while since she's been on a debate stage and that was obviously focused on one party but it seems to me that there there was a benefit to the trump campaign even if it doesn't necessarily immediately register in the polls. And that is it sort of reset the table It sort of put the first debate and the narrative that came out of that debate in the distance somewhat. And it provides an opportunity for Trump to, well, be better, whether it's on a debate stage or just on the trail.
8: There's no doubt that Vice President Pence is a more polished, on-message, disciplined politician than President Trump is. I and mean, I think that anyone with two eyes and two ears can tell that. I think that Pence is, I mean, in some ways you watch him up there and you're like, wow, to see him in the White House with this president is kind of shocking because they are just so different from the disposition right. perspective. And then you see President Trump, I mean, again, you see him do this interview with Sean Hannity where he's talking about all kinds of things, which sort of free associating. And the contrast between that and his own VP is pretty stark. I thought that maybe the president was let Vice President Pence have a little more of the news cycle after that BP performance because you know Pence got up there and did exactly what he had to do. Again, felt a pretty tough hand with talking about the past year and the COVID nineteen pandemic, but he, I think, did as much as the Trump campaign could have hoped. And then the president goes on TV and starts talking about all kinds of different things that he is want to do. So it was a you know really you know widely watched event, I think, again, speaks to the sort of hunger that the public has just for any kind of direct contact with these these candidates at the top of the ticket right now.
2: Uh, And uh, what of uh, Nancy Pelosi's latest uh, 25th Amendment gambit uh, commission to uh, make a determination on President Trump's fitness for office three weeks before an election? Obviously, she doesn't expect that um, he is going to be removed under the 25th Amendment. So this is this is what this is just a PR play to say he is uh, more crazy than Joe Biden is lacking in cogn- cognitive ability?
8: Sure. I mean, this is straight out of like a West Wing liberal <laughs> exactly, fantasy
2: yes. TV script. Yeah, Aaron you know, Sorkin's it's, work. It's, yes.
8: Look, we're three weeks out, as you say, from an election. You're going to see all kinds of stuff from both parties in this vein that are clearly are meant to try to descale in some way in this presidential race. I would also just throw in there that Some of the stuff we're seeing out of the bar justice department is frightening me as well. And I think it's also reckless and concerning this notion that prosecutors can have more discretion to file cases related to the election before the election. it might've got lost in the news cycle this week, but again, if you are Republican or democratic conservative or a liberal libertarian, you name it. Like you don't want the justice department under any president having sort of free reign to kind of go out there, these U.S. attorneys to file cases that would seem to interfere with the election. You know, if you want a clean and fair, an election that you can believe in the results, you don't want this stuff going on right now. And it's disappointing to see it again from all sides. He
2: is Andy Kroll. He is the Washington, D.C. Bureau Chief for Rolling Stone Magazine. Andy, thanks for joining us again. Always a pleasure. Thanks. Take care.
0: You're listening to the Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network.
2: Welcome back to the show. We talked about uh, the plot against Gretchen Whitmer and the arrests that were made uh, per the Department of Justice, federal law enforcement, on this uh, absurd kidnapping plot by these. Goofball Wolverine Watchman in Michigan. Uh, I uh, really enjoyed, and we'll, we'll talk about it a little bit more next hour with Chadwick Moore, I should say, from the Spectator USA. But um, I, uh, I really liked President Trump's response to this via Twitter. Governor Whitmer of Michigan has done a terrible job. <laughs> yeah. She locked down her state for everyone except her husband's boating activities. The federal government provided tremendous help to the great people of Michigan. My Justice Department and federal law enforcement announced today—of course, this was yesterday— That they foiled a dangerous plot against the governor of Michigan. Rather than say thank you, she calls me a white supremacist. While Biden and Democrats refuse to condemn Antifa, anarchist looters, and mobs that burn down Democrat run cities. I do not tolerate any extreme violence. Defending all Americans, even those who oppose and attack me, is what I will always do as your president. Governor Whitmer, open up your state, open up your schools, open up your churches. What I do, I, I, I don't feel sorry for you. I don't think you're a good governor. I don't even think you're a good person. But in this country and in a free society, you have equal protection under the law, just as I do. And so I will scramble the resources and uh, I will make sure that's the culture in my administration that everybody get treated equally, equal protections. And um, that's what Gretchen Whitmer got. Gretchen Whitmer, a appeaser of the defund the police and eliminate punishment crowd, in addition to the Ava Perone of East Lansing with her lockdown policies, right? Um, lest we forget, because the accusation was that this was all about a tweeting Liberate Michigan, President Trump. Thus, he's responsible for this kidnapping plot. That's the implication from the lobotomized left. Liberate Michigan obviously was always about the arbitrary and incredibly inane lockdown policies of the governor there such that it was one of the first states to draw organized protests at the state's capital, such that it was only two weeks ago the Michigan Supreme Court ruled that Gretchen Whitmer's uh, power to shutter businesses and confine people to their homes except for her approved purposes improperly delegated legislative functions to the executive branch. The uh, Michigan Supreme Court's view about the governor's edicts being, quote, reasonable and necessary, those two words, they found neither. The court writing in its opinion, the sheer magnitude of the authority in dispute, as well as its concentration in a single individual, simply cannot be sustained within our constitutional system of separated powers. Court in Pennsylvania found the same with respect to another lockdown and bust artist named Tom Wolfe, the governor there and his lockdown policies. So I think uh, Trump struck exactly the right note. I'm not going to empathize with you. I'm not going to pretend you're somebody other than who you are, and I'm not going to pretend your behavior has been something other than what it's been. And I will still make sure that the people's resources are used to provide equal protection under the law. Yeah, that's what leadership looks like. This is Dan Proft. This
0: is the Dan Proft Show.
2: Twitter at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft show. Uh, We haven't covered it. We need to. Earlier this week, grand jury indicting Mark and Patricia McCloskey on charges of exhibiting guns at protesters in that uh, June incident in front of their homes, added a charge of tampering with evidence for both, both McCloskey's as well. Mark McCloskey, this uh, trial attorney. uh, Remember they spoke at the RNC too. They broke down our gate. They trespassed on our property. Not a single one of those people are now charged with anything. We're charged with felonies that could cost us four years of our lives and our law license. What you're witnessing here is just an opportunity for the government, the leftist Democrat government of the city of St. Louis, to persecute us for doing more no more than exercising our Second Amendment rights. Mm-hmm. We have a, a real issue right now, not just in terms of the tolerance for lawlessness by the left, but also the law enforcement against those who would protect themselves when the protection they pay for through their taxes is told to stand down. That's on the ballot on November 3rd. And you don't have to like the McCloskey's to recognize the importance of that case. I don't like the McCloskey's from everything I know about them because I'm not particularly disposed to litigious trial lawyers. Uh, But and they're getting mugged by the reality of their erstwhile friends that uh, their profession otherwise finances, aren't they? But it doesn't mean they should. I mean, that's why we have constitutional rights there for everybody, not just people you like. That's the only way you have a civil society. And we don't increasingly now, do we? Again, this week in Wauwatosa, Wisconsin, people didn't like a decision made by a Democrat Milwaukee County D.A., and they randomly pick houses in that suburban community to vandalize. For more on this, the choice between chaos and the rule of law, the choice between the predator and the law abiding. We're pleased to be joined by Randy Peterson, senior researcher at the Texas Public Policy Foundation, retired law enforcement officer with the Bloomingdale, Illinois Police Department, former director of the Tarrant County College District Criminal Justice Training Center in Texas. Randy, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Morning. So uh, you retired from uh, Bloomingdale Police and you moved to Texas, did you? Boy, that's an unusual story.
5: <laughs> I think that's becoming a pretty uh, uh, non-interesting story. Yeah, <laughs> it
2: really is. Uh, imagine that. Um uh, you uh, penned a piece in the American conservative about uh, this choice before us on election day. I mean, really every day, particularly in, in, with our local governments that is closest to us and we can have the most influence on. Uh, that should be that should that should not necess- necessitate an election to make that choice. But in addition to that, of course, it's on the ballot up up and down the ballot on November 3rd.
5: Yeah, we, we I mean, we definitely have a choice coming up. And I, I think the, the scary part you pointed out the, the McCloskey in- incident, when you think about that, um, you know, the, the left, uh, you know, no one, six months ago, no one was seriously talking or discussing about defunding the police or, or in many circumstances in left, uh, circles, actually abolishing the police. That was, that was a non-starter issue. And now it's becoming almost mainstream through, uh, at least on that side of the, of the table. There's not a lot of middle ground there. And when you see with the, with the McCloskey's, that's, that's what, society looks like when you don't have police, they have to police themselves. And now they tried to take that right away from them, right? They've indicted them for doing that. There was no police there to defend them. Um, they took minimal steps to defend themselves, right? I mean, it was a display of firearms. It wasn't, they didn't shoot at anybody. Um, and and I mean, I think that gives you all you need to know about what the left's plans are. It's, it's an anarchist sort of a mentality. It's not they don't believe in the institutions of, uh, of our government.
2: There's no question about it. I mean, I referenced this piece earlier in the week, but it bears repeating because this is somebody who's been mainstreamed by the Democrat Socialist Party. Angela Davis, who's a communist, not dissimilar to many intellects and academics that are uh, affiliated with the Democrat Socialist Party. And uh, she uh, penned a piece in Medium, Why Arguments Against Abolition Inevitably Fail, She's talking about arguments against abolishing the police. There are no good arguments against abolishing the police. Oh, and by the way, it's not just police. We're already, they're already moving down the line, uh, challenging the left to catch up with them, the intellectual leaders of this poisonous ideology. Both policing, yeah. both poli- this is what she writes, both policing and punishment. So state's attorney's offices, prison system. Both policing and punishment are firmly rooted in racism, attempts to control indigenous, black and Latino populations following colonization and slavery, as well as Asian populations after the Chinese Exclusion Act and World War II, the World War II incarceration of Japanese Americans. Those those are the uh, roots of modern day policing and punishment, all of those uh, uh, sorry episodes in American history.
5: And I I think we saw that that contrast displayed in Tuesday night's debate, you know, um, Vice President uh, Pence uh, soundly rejected the idea that uh, America's policing institutions are uh, fundamentally racist. And I I was glad to hear him uh, refute that argument, uh, which I thought was fantastic. But the the idea of tearing down the the police is, um, you know, as part of that anarchist or as you said, communist movement, right? The police are, the role of the police is to defend our rights. You know, that's really the the role of government in a a limited government conservative sense. They're the last line of defense there. If you get rid of them, you know, the anarchists um, have, you know, they have the room to destroy as it's been said before. Right. Um, So removing the police as defenders, uh, is a huge problem. Defunding them is the first step towards that, right? Cause you'll make them incompetent through minimizing the training and, uh, not being able to hire the best and brightest. All of those things will occur. So you can break it down slowly or tear it down quickly, but either way, that's their goal.
2: Uh, do you, um, do you believe Joe Biden, when he said during the debate uh, last week that, uh, he didn't quite say that uh, there is that the, the the police are not structurally racist, but he did talk about, you know, sort of generally gave a sop to police by saying, yes, most police are good. there's some bad police and, and we have to reimagine police. So was, he, he tried to middle the issue essentially by using the language of the left, but giving himself some room so he doesn't sound uh, as uh, as crazy as Angela Davis
5: right that's exactly what he's doing he's trying to thread that needle and uh you know the the term reimagining policing um sounds kind of warm and fuzzy depending on who it's coming from and if you don't realize what you know where it's originated on the left which is in the abolishing uh circles right that's what reimagining policing looks like is is getting rid of the police as we know it um so he you know he he said both sides of the issue i guess which is, is not unusual. The,
2: the, um, this is important because of the, uh, the Orwellian uh, newspeak that the left engages in. When they say reimagine police, I mean, they're saying the same thing Angela Davis is saying. And, and let me tell you what you said and again in this piece. Just as we hear calls today for more humane policing, people at the time then call for a more humane slavery. That's which that's the comparison she makes. So for people who are saying, Tim Scott, for example, his legislation to incentivize reform at the federal level to incentivize police reforms at the local level. Uh, some of the other discussions underway in individual departments about the topics that are being discussed nationally, including no knock warrants and so forth. Uh, that's yeah. just that that's just calling for a, a more humane form of slavery, according to Angela Davis. So when people say uh, reimagine, they are talking about defund. They are talking about social workers either right away or over time displacing police, that they are talking about what Angela Davis is talking about it. They're just not talking about it in the stark terms that she is.
5: That's exactly right. They're, they're, the idea of reimagining police, policing is to change it completely. It's not to improve it. Right? As conservatives, we take incremental steps to improve fundamental institutions. We don't take drastic steps to um, and tear down long standing institutions like that that's their goal is to, is to completely uh, change it and into something that we wouldn't recognize and I think you pointed out some of the ideas are you know uh, social workers responding and um, you know if that doesn't make you feel unsafe. Um, You know, in the middle of a a robbery, the idea that two or three social workers might come through the door to to help you that's, we're here. We can talk about
2: Yeah, I'll tell you what, (laughs) I'll tell you what, if I was a social worker, I wouldn't be volunteering for that duty. Uh, I mean, (laughs) honestly, I mean, it's just, it's just, it's really just breathtaking. Randy Peterson, senior researcher at the Texas Public Policy Foundation, retired law enforcement officer from uh, Bloomingdale, Illinois Police Department, and former director of the Tarrant county college district criminal justice training center in the republic of texas randy peterson thanks for joining us appreciate it thank
5: you have a great day
8: guys
0: exposing political fakers fixers and takers he's dan proft and this is the dan proft show
2: Welcome back to The Dan Prof Show, segueing from our conversation with uh, Randy Peterson about uh, policing and that uh, being systemically racist uh, to uh, America being systemically racist. As our friend David Azarod writes uh, at uh, Real Clear Public Affairs in their 1776 series on the peculiar character of American racism, the, that America is racist, is a racist country, is the great self-evident truth of the left and of the ruling class whose moral opinions are shaped by it. The truth is self-evident in the sense of being readily apparent to them, as evidenced by the countless disparities in life outcomes between blacks and whites. No explanation for these disparities is ever required. Their mere existence is proof of racism. All disparities are. And uh, that includes disparate treatment. So Yelp is on the case, uh, folding in with uh, the uh, state-sponsored racial order that uh, the ruling class is uh, attempting to affect. The Scarlet Y perhaps is uh, something that uh, will be uh, 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 businesses will be required to adorn if uh, they are accused of uh, racist behavior. Have you heard about Yelp's new program as part of their uh, initiatives to uh, be more woke? Because as Yelp says, we value diversity, inclusion and belonging, both internally and on our platform, which means we have a zero tolerance policy for racism. Yeah, racism is great for business, isn't it? This is the old um, Milton Friedman formula. I want to punish the racist. You don't. I want to punish the racist and the marketplace is the best way to punish that person. You want to institute laws that protect the racist by requiring them to behave like the non-racist. An interesting way to think about it. I think it is the uh, shoe store that says, I will only sell to Asians and no others. Well, uh, when that becomes known and uh, to the extent that you can't uh, generate a large enough customer base against uh, of Asians only, then you're going to be in trouble economically compared to your competitor across the street who sells to Asians, whites, blacks, everybody under the sun, right? Is that logical to follow? Yelp rolled out a number of initiatives to help users find and support black-owned businesses. We partnered with My Black Re- Receipt on the launch of Black-Owned Business, uh, Black-Owned Business Attribute, joined the 15% pledge to further amplify black-owned businesses. Mm-hmm. While searches for black-owned businesses surged on Yelp, so did the volume of reviews warning users of racist behavior at businesses. So today, uh, meaning yesterday, they announced a response to this. They, the Yelp, will now place a distinct consumer alert on business pages to caution people about businesses that may be associated with overtly racist actions. And they have a picture of it. Big exclamation point with three circles. Business accused of racist behavior blares the alert. Recently, someone associated with this business was accused of racist behavior, resulting in an influx of people posting their views to this page. Racism is reprehensible, has no place on Yelp, and we unequivocally reject racism. in Any form read reports about racist behavior here. <laughs> uh. When a business gains public attention for reports of racist conduct, such as using racist language or symbols, Yelp will place this new business accused of racist behavior alert tag on their Yelp page to inform users, along with a link to a news article where they can learn more about any incident. Gosh, do you see any potential pitfalls to this? You think this is going to improve relations and stamp out racism in the uh, few corners in which it can continues to exist in a meaningful way. Yes, it continues to exist, but the ubiquity of it is uh, so vastly overstated by these uh, woke warriors. It's, uh, it's really something now uh, a reminder Yelp uh, and the Re- Yelp reminds its users that uh, Yelp's policy has always been that reviews may be must be based on actual firsthand consumer experiences with the business. We don't allow people to leave reviews based on media reports because it can artificially inflate or deflate a business's star rating. But we certainly encourage people. To report to you know, be on the lookout for racist behavior. So here's the point, of course, obviously what happened. I have a bad experience at a restaurant. And I call it racism. Uh, I mean, our, our friend Will Riley down at Kentucky State University wrote a book called The Hate Crime Hoax. All the instances of Jesse Smollett type cases around race. Why? Because you've incentivized people to claim victim status for gain of status and in some cases monetary benefit. Also, revenge, the idea that, you know, you're striking a blow against this uh, racist America, which you've been taught is wired into our DNA racism, right? So this is uh, exacting uh, vengeance, uh, peeling off reparations, as it were, in some form or fashion. Uh, there have been high profile cases that uh, where a restaurant has actually sued Yelp reviewers, claiming the review was Unfair and thus defamatory where restaurants have won Uh, in court. They've won monetary damages. They have had these uh, reviewers banned on Yelp and so forth. So there is ostensibly remediation to false accusations. But, you know, sort of like being acquitted after you've been indicted and uh, former Reagan Labor Secretary Ray Donovan's famous uh, statements to the press after he was acquitted in a corruption trial. Where do I go to get my reputation back? Sure, I was found guilty. If I'm not guilty, excuse me, I was acquitted. But where did I go to get my reputation back? All the coverage is about how I'm this corrupt public official. Are you, am I going to get equal coverage about how I was acquitted by a jury of my peers and therefore I'm the, those accusations against me, even with the alleged caveat, were unfair? No, of course not. So once you're branded a uh, business accused of racist behavior by Yelp. Where do you go to get your reputation back? Even if somebody had a bad experience, had an exchange with a waiter or waitress, and then they've turned that into a racial incident, even if it wasn't. Is that possible? Possible. It's likely. It's happening all the time. And it's encouraged everywhere. As if operating a restaurant <laughs> or public place of accommodation wasn't difficult enough in the era of Yelp plus the era of COVID. Now you're going to get this. Now you're not only going, you not only get businesses being uh, torn asunder by their government and uh, the sentinels of the state wandering around trying to jackpot people who aren't, you know, abiding exactly what they think the protocols are and should be regarding COVID. Now you have this. Boy, tough racket that restaurant business. Tough racket any business. Tough racket being an American these days when you're trying to get along with other people, regardless of non behavioral characteristics like their race, and you're not looking to jackpot your neighbor. You're in a, uh, well, what will soon be perhaps a protected class, but not when they're in charge, just a minority. This is Dan Thoth.
0: show at danprofshow.com
2: Welcome back to the show. Nor bin Laden, being pro Trump has caused me more grief than being Osama bin Laden's niece. Boy, the headline is the story, isn't it? Uh Nor bin Laden, uh nothing like her deceased uncle Uh, She is a proponent of the West and of peaceful pluralism and seemingly a nice woman. But I mean, again, you saw how people react. You think with the name bin Laden and the familiar relationship, she has to be some sort of terrorist or terrorist conspirator. She's nothing of the sort. In fact, she's a Trump supporter. She, um, references this uh, letter that she wrote supporting her love of America and support for President Trump. The response to my letter to America has been overwhelmingly wonderful. And I'm mostly thankful to all those who took the time to read it and send kind messages, including spectator readers. But in my private life, I've lost a few so-called friends for backing Trump over the past five years. Coming out publicly was a step too far for some, and the vitriol I received for stating my political beliefs revealed unflattering sides to certain characters. From a sociological standpoint, she writes, it's quite interesting that in some elitist circles, Being pro-Trump has caused me more grief than carrying the name bin Laden. And why does she support President Trump? Like a lot of people, she says, I support him because of the record. And she goes through the record just as you would or Chadwick Moore would. And uh, on that score, we're pleased to be joined by Chadwick Moore, who's a uh, columnist for The Spectator. And always a fun guest. Chadwick, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey Dan, thanks for having me on. So uh, you know, but I mean, I, I, this is—it's really something. I just—I'm still jarred by that headline. Being pro-Trump caused me more grief than being Osama bin Laden's niece. What do you say to that?
6: Is anyone honestly surprised by that headline, though?
2: No. <laughs> right. And especially when she uh, provides the uh, explanatory uh, backup for why that is the case. It seems to me this goes to uh, uh, what uh, another columnist, Nathaniel Blake, uh, wrote over at The Federalist. And this was in part in response to Brett Stevens, columnist in the New York Times earlier this week, about why he wanted Trump to recover. He wished Trump well with his COVID infection because he wants Trump to be perfectly healthy when he gets throttled on election day because right wing populism needs to be repudiated by Americans for the benefit of the Western world. And that's why he was wishing Trump well. His point being that elites want to get back to where things were over the 25 years that preceded Trump. And they want to just relegate this uh, unfortunate four year period as just that unfortunate and pretend like it never happened.
6: Of course, they've been playing that since the day after the election last year. Well, maybe once actually they calmed down a bit and then realized the horrible reality they were now living in. Of course. They hope for this to be just a blip. They don't want it to be the sign of things to come and and something to change. And and look at on their own side, too. They don't want their own populist movement rising up, i.e., Bernie Sanders, the ARCs, all that. Look at how they once again throttled in their establishment candidate that has zero enthusiasm whatsoever um no one's enthusiastic to vote for this guy i don't think i've ever even seen a biden a biden sign or t-shirt here in liberal new york city but you know the establishment's freaking out of course you know it's only a matter of time i think for the left does get their grassroots candidate in who has all that enthusiasm and um the establishment doesn't want to see that any more than the, the, the republican establishment didn't want to see trump get in and now they've you know obviously sort of uh over the years acquiesced to him and, and warmed up to him a bit but it's still pretty much the same.
2: uh we were talking uh a little bit earlier in the program about um, the state of play in these big blue states with big blue cities that are still playing uh, lockdown whack-a-mole and in some cases moving even more draconian lockdown policies like in California where the advice and counsel from the governor's office in advance of this weekend was to keep your mask on as much as humanly possible, remove it only when you have to actually ingest food and put your mask up in between bites. That's that's where we're at now in terms of the granularity of the regulation of mass culture. And I wonder uh, how that's playing in New York as well, where you still have the, these sorts of fights going on, including among the Orthodox Jewish community that is rising up.
6: Right, Well, you have sections of central Brooklyn and of central Queens, and down on a little bit of the coast of Queens, which are now going into back to before phase one lockdown. So it's old, old lockdown, absolutely. Only, only essential businesses, because the government's claiming there's a spike in those neighborhoods. Now, it's interesting if you compare the map, the neighborhoods that are going into, going back into Draconian Lockdown. It's all Draconian, but back into, before they sort of ease things up. If you overlay, overlay that with the 2016 election map, an identical fit for areas that voted Republican. Obviously, there's small areas that vote Republican in New York City, but there are very red Districts in New York City. So that's interesting. Of course, they'll just say it's these Trump supporters who are spreading around the virus. But other than that, I just saw that Broadway is not opening again until at least May 2021. It's almost like these people are intentionally trying to ruin their cities. And whether it's for a to crowbar themselves into the real estate industry, because there's been an estimation that half the restaurants and bars will not reopen. Uh, they're trying to do something, they want the government to crowbar themselves and more into the real estate industry. Or who knows? I mean, these communists, I don't I don't pass anything by them. This could be part of some big plan to start driving people out of these states into red states like Texas, like Florida, and start flipping those states. Because these people aren't going to change how they vote. We already see mass ex- exoduses from New York and California, which will just still remain blue no matter what, into places like Texas and
5: Florida.
2: Uh, when we come back with uh, Spectre USA columnist Chadwick Moore... How antifa made Chadwick a Christian stay tuned for that right after this.
7: the
0: more you listen the more you'll know this is this, this is the Dan prof show
2: Welcome back to the show. Uh, We uh, played this clip earlier in the show, but uh, it bears repeating for our conversation with Spectator USA columnist Chadwick Moore. And this is uh, one of these uh, goons, these Antifa flag sporting goons. I hasten to add that was arrested in connection with the alleged plot to kidnap Michigan governor Gretchen Whitmer. Uh, This had been treated by the left as uh, some sort of, you know, Trump supporting militia. Well, Uh, Here's one of the members in his own words.
3: Trump is not your friend, dude. And it's it amazes me that people actually like believe that when he's shown over and over and over again that he's a tyrant. Every single person that works for government is your enemy, dude. Uh,
2: Yeah. uh, So, Chadwick, it turns out that uh, anarchists, be they white, black or anything else, They're not on the side of a law and order candidate like Donald Trump. This just in.
6: Right. Yeah. You know, Latrice, who works down at the DMV, she's your enemy because she works for the government. Right. I mean, what are these people even talking about? Uh, Well, we we see what happens when the law enforcement does. I think Trump has kind of done the right thing until now with saying if the states and cities want our help, we're there, but they haven't called in for the federal government. So let's just see what happens. This is the future they want. And yet these people, they're a tiny percentage of the population. Yet they get an oversized portion of media coverage and they get an oversized Microphone. And of course, they have very, very good friends in polite society, like at CNN and other places who run cover for them. But I don't really think this is a powerful voting block necessarily, or people even know where their polling station is.
2: Although Antifa may soon have a mayor of a major city, that being Portland
6: right yeah yeah they uh, it, it's funny to see them going after ted wheeler far left progressive they do the same here in new york they hate de blasio more than the conservatives do right i think they're the ones painting all the groups because he's not you know far left enough he hasn't actually disbanded the nypd or or uh given reparations or whatever their their demands are <laughs> who knows uh how, they, how you get more far left and crazy than bill de blasio or ted wheeler but well, oh, well actually i mean we have probably actually seen that pop up in municipalities across the country so i won't say any more than that
2: well i mean the, the you know this is these these are people, I mean, these uh, appeasers of the mob are people who know nothing about the course of human history. The appeasers have their heads on spikes. The first you think that uh, they're your friends, you're going to accommodate them so that they, you know, in, in the uh, parlance of the, the Marxists, they eat you last. That's not how it works at all. That's not how it's ever worked. And it's funny because we talked to on the show uh, earlier in this week to Aaron Smith, this conservative trans woman who went undercover in Atifa a, in uh, Portland. And she uh, did this interview at Reason Magazine about her experience. And it was uh, it's remarkable because she she said the same thing. I asked her, what do they think of Ted Wheeler in Portland, they, in, in the Antifa in Portland? Oh, they hate him. Oh, they, they think he's repugnant. And obviously attacking his condo building is sort of an indication of that. I mean, he would be the first to go. And this is why they're challenging him. And because he's turned his city over to Antifa, They could actually you could actually elect a member, some some uh, chick wearing a a skirt with all sorts of communist thugs on it. She could be the next mayor of Portland. I mean, not even Portlandia. The series could come up with this storyline.
6: Right. And this is why you don't give one inch. You don't kneel. As soon as they smell blood in the water, they smell weakness. And there, you are the first reasons people they'll come from. They know that Ed Wheeler is weak and pathetic. They know the same as Bill de Blasio. He's incompetent and pathetic. Bill de Blasio only wants one thing in life, and that's for black people to like him. That's my theory about Bill de Blasio. So he, they, they know he's pathetic. They know he doesn't have a strong sense of himself. They know he'll do anything. And these are the first people they are coming for. Like you said, these are the first heads on the spike because these are the people they need to replace. If you fight back against the mob and if you laugh in their face, then it, it really jam, jams their radars. And especially if you start bringing in uh, police force and really start shutting things down. Well, they, they it calms things down pretty quickly, as we've seen in, in places that uh, that weren't so uh, lax with their with their mob problem, their mob violence problem.
2: Well, explain uh, your piece, uh, Spectator.us, Us, how Antifa made you a Christian.
6: Well, I was sort of reflecting on back then. all my friends used to be far left progressives who we could pretty much tolerate each other until the election. Then, of course, as the the, the other spectator piece that uh, Bin Ladenese was talking about, it was you know I, everyone fled after the election and suddenly I was a racist and a Nazi and whatever. Um, but I was sort of thinking about re- the, the the current issue of this of the spectators about religion and politics, and I was I was sort of reflecting on when I knew these people how just how deeply miserable they were, and they all had nice jobs, nice homes. Nice families, but their politics. But they're also, you know, B- staunch BLMers. All this stuff. They're, they're probably in Antifa today. And um, I sort of had pinned it down to their atheism and this sort of uh, this sort of journey that I've been on. Sorry to use that word, but uh, going back to the church and reading more about Christianity and, and just seeing how that that I uh, pinning that down on just this sort of abject gloom that always. Hovered over these people I knew, and it was sort of my entire social world and, and probably the entire borough of Brooklyn, except for certain areas. <laughs> but um, uh, so I, I just sort of wrote about it in the Spectator and, and, and you know, I've been thinking a lot about these sort of what the left really wants and this this conflict and vision between the left and the right and, and how the the you know the right sort of accept that, that that the world and people are flawed. And you cannot perfect them, but you can do the best that you can. And the left believes that that all people and that societies are perfectible, and that you can create a sort of utopia on earth. And as uh, T. S. Eliot had 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 said, you know they're, they're looking for these these systems that are so perfect that no one has to be good. And uh, right. that I think really gets at the core between the the division between the two sides and their worldview.
2: And, and so, uh, for, for those that were were in your social circle once upon a time, do you uh, reflect back on them as just so woefully uninformed they could they can't connect the dots in ter- terms of what they're advocating and where it leads, or did they have bad intentions?
6: You know, it's it, I think it's, it has so much to do with social pressure because these are really intelligent people. Some of them with master's degrees, some of them, uh, uh, you know, had very nice uplinks. Smart people. And in, in the sort of last, you know, four years ago or however long are the last interactions I. I had with them, it was that – and I think everyone can relate to this for the the liberal in their life – is that as soon as you start making sense and as soon as you start laying out your arguments and they sort of realize that that their conceptions about you and your candidates are not what they thought – uh, they don't want to hear, they don't want to listen. It's so upsetting to them because they've made their politics such a part of their identity. They freak out, they shut it down, they scream at you, and they run away. Instead of, thinking that's, instead of saying, you know, that's interesting, I've never thought of it that way. Wow, okay, hmm, I still don't like Trump or whatever, but that's interesting, I see your side. Uh, I, I think it has to do with a lot of, I think that's so much of it is social pressure. People are so afraid of, uh, of what happens if you, if you step out of, of what your, your neighbors and your friends and your peers believe and your coworkers and how you will get ostracized and they don't want to hear it. Uh, they don't want to be uh, have their their minds expanded and try to understand. Um, hmm. at least you know that's what I thought a lot of them. It's not that they were yeah. certainly unintelligent people, you know.
2: No, I think that I think there's a lot to that. I think that we've seen that throughout the annals of history too as well as just the research that suggests people would rather be physically harmed than publicly ridiculed. This is why so many people Absolutely. are afraid of public speaking and so it speaks to that social pressure. He is Chadwick Moore, columnist for Spectator USA. Chadwick, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it.
6: My pleasure. Thank you.
3: You're
0: listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network.
2: Welcome back to the show as we close out the week. Uh, consideration for how the holidays will proceed in your family. I mean, gosh, Thanksgiving will only be uh, a short time after the election. Who knows? We may not even have conclusion to the election. So in uh, politically divided families, uh, maybe the food fights will be more intense than they've ever been, whether we have a formal outcome or not. But maybe they can be avoided by because people just won't even show up. Part of the COVID protocols that so many of the hosts of holiday festivities are suggesting they will be instituting. This comes to us from a new survey. 2,000 Americans finding that holiday parties and dinners may be very different this season. And it is not just a year of. I'm afraid it's going to be the age of COVID. What's COVID culture like? Well, 30% of respondents to the survey plan on setting up mandatory temperature check at their front doors for all guests. Over half of those survey, 54%, say they plan on enforcing strict social distancing rules the next time they host a shindig. Are they going to put the insanity circles or squares six feet apart on their floors and carpets and so forth? Are you? Many, 46%, putting together comprehensive lists of their party guests... So it'll be easier to contact trace in the event someone tests positive for COVID-19. Oh, perfect. Aren't you a dutiful little sentinel of the state? Other new party rules include having only one person serve food and drinks. That's 37% of respondents. Um, I've seen that actually at golf outings already. Mandatory RSVPs, 24%. Even holding the entire party outside, 27%. Sure. It's going to be fun in uh, states where the... uh, Winter is a real thing. Chicago, Illinois, where I live, yeah. I, there we're still a, well, reconciling with exactly how outdoor eating is going to work with sub-zero temperatures. The one suggestion, and I'm not making this up, is that uh, restaurants construct essentially like little ice fishing cabins that they use their sidewalk and street space so that patrons can eat inside of these little cabins. Of course, that's an idea from the city, but it won't be financed by the city. It'll be financed by restaurateurs operating at 25, maybe 50, 40 or 50 percent capacity, and then that additional expense if they're to survive the winter. <laughs> uh, Mr. Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot sent out a tweet with uh, uh, winter is coming from Game of Thrones and a picture of Ned Stark. For, for you Game of Thrones fans, Lori Lightfoot clearly isn't one. I don't know how to break it to or how it ended for Ned Stark in Game of Thrones, but I digress. The, also, uh, many of the respondents have suggested that um, they are planning a virtual Thanksgiving dinner this year. Four in 10 respondents say they're going to do a virtual Thanksgiving the way that Joe Biden and the Presidential Debate Commission wants to do virtual debates. The sentiment, com- uh, especially common regarding older family members, 40 percent would just rather celebrate with their older relatives via video chat to ensure their safety. I'll tell you what, the. Again, the silver lining here is now I'll be able to get out of uh, parties and dinners I don't want to go to just by saying, you know, I want to be a hero, too. I want to save lives. If there's going to be older people there, I I don't want to risk it. And also, I'm not going to stand in my little circle for two hours and drink and eat and so forth there. So, um, as I said, perhaps a blessing in disguise here from all kinds of holiday festivities you would rather avoid. Thank you for joining us all week on the Dan Prof Show. Please have a wonderful weekend. Uh, John Cass from the Chicago Tribune will be sitting in for me on Monday, so I will catch you back here on Tuesday.
0: This is the Dan Prof Show.